Hey everyone, welcome back to Movie Morning. Today I'm going to be reviewing, with spoilers, Spider-Man No Way Home. If you haven't yet seen the movie, make sure to check out my non-spoiler review that I published two or three days ago, I believe. And yeah, here I'm going to be diving deep into the movie, discussing spoilers. Also, if you haven't already, make sure to check out my Spider-Man ranking, which in that ranking I do not talk about No Way Home spoilers either. So if you haven't seen the movie, make sure to check that out. And in a few days, hopefully tomorrow, I will be giving you my ranking of all 32 MCU movies and shows. I'm supremely excited to do so. I'm about to actually start working on it very, very soon. And of course, obviously, again, massive spoiler warning. I mean, I've already given it, but I just want to make sure that you don't get this incredible experience of a movie ruined for you. And believe me, you won't want it ruined. So with that said... If you've already seen my review, you know my thoughts on the movie, so I don't need to give an overview or anything. I'll just say I love the movie as a Spider-Man fan. Definitely a few issues, particularly in the first act, but overall, such a satisfying, amazing theater experience that I honestly really would like to relive. And I cannot wait to see the movie again in a few days. Absolutely one of my favorites of the year. And I cannot wait till it hopefully shows up on my best movies of 2021 list coming next week, which hopefully I can get out before I'm going to have to before I become start to get really busy again. So with that said, let's get started with this massive spoiler review. And also, I will try to limit myself to talking about things that people actually want to hear about and not mentioning like tiny plot points that I might have loved, but no one really wants me to talk about as much. But there's definitely a few things which I don't think people are giving enough credit to, which I need to get into. But knowing me, I like to talk, especially about Spider-Man. So I'm going to try to hold myself back because the movie's been out for over a week now. I don't think anyone wants to listen to a two-hour discussion about this movie. Just keep that in mind so you're watching. With that said, let's get into it. So let's get started. So the movie starts off just where Far From Home ended. And the first scene, which I absolutely loved, I actually liked the music that was playing in the background. It didn't fully fit, but it was kind of really, it didn't really, it felt a bit unique from Michael Giacchino in these Spider-Man movies. It, it, it didn't really bring, like, the dread of what was going on, but it, was, it just kind of showed the frantic nature. And what I liked about the first 10 minutes was that although I have to admit that some of it felt a bit rushed, for the first 10 minutes, it did actually work because it, again, showed the frantic, stressful nature of what was going on. It starts right at the end, far from home. Peter swings MJ back to their house, and they, she shows May, Aunt May and John Favreau's Happy Hogan that, you know... He's now been revealed to the public. Uh, Peter is actually forced to move apartments because people are constantly, you know, bombarding his house, filming his house, throwing stuff into his house. We believe Mysterio rocks. Talk about that in just a second. Uh, He has to move apartments. I actually loved how Jon Favreau was happy. It was actually a big part of, like, especially the opening first half of this movie. He played, he wasn't in the movie much, but he did play an important role because he provided the house for the villains to occupy so at least appreciated that and I like that he was a bit more involved in this because he almost does feel part of their family since you know you know what's going on between him and anime but I like that and I've always really liked that character and unfortunately you know at the end of this movie I don't know if we'll ever really see him again but I'll talk about that at the end of this spoiler review obviously Peter's forced to move apartments but before this he all his friends, including Atme, are getting interviewed. And one of the things I actually really liked was how one of the one of the one of the people interviewing Atme actually asked about how 
what kind of legal guardian would allow their child to risk their life like this? And I loved this because I felt like in Far From Home, I didn't really like, although I've never really mentioned this because it's such a small plot point, these movies don't go into it at all. I've always been kind of weirded out by how she just accepts it so easily. I mean, like, in the, at the end, I mean, she might have not because there were two, almost two years between Homecoming and Infinity War that we had no idea what happened. I mean, at least like a year and a half, if I'm not wrong. So there might have been a lot of debate there. And by the time we're in Far From Home, it's like five years later. And, you know, and both of them got blipped, though. So I don't know. It really depends on how the movie presents it. But it seems like she was very open to it. Because without Spider-Man, I mean, Peter Parker might have died in the Washington Monument. So I understand that. But I like that it questions it. But I also like it doesn't go into it. Because I think it would have taken up unnecessary screen time. This is already a pretty long movie it's not actually all that long if you take out credits but it is a long movie and i understand that casual viewers don't like long movies personally especially if it's like a big epic scale movie i love long movies so i'm probably just alone and maybe wanting to see this but i'm sure that cutting it down would have helped them um moving right along though um obviously the big thing we have to talk about here which got me so excited was we see the camera, I believe on Happy Ogan's face, talking to someone. And clearly there's some legal talk going on. The camera pans backwards. We see someone with a, with a walking cane, just like Matt Murdock in the Netflix series had. And, and I, my mind wasn't really ready yet because the movie just started. This is like eight or nine minutes in. And I noticed one cane. I'm like, that looks so familiar. And then they, they zoom in on Charlie Cox as Matt Murdock. And I actually heard that they actually filmed this scene, filmed Charlie Cox's part in this scene separately from the others, which I thought was actually put together pretty seamlessly, while in other scenes that really didn't work, which I'll get into. Charlie Cox was only in one scene. He's in like 30 seconds, or maybe like a minute. He only has a few lines of dialogue and really didn't need to be in here. But it's one of those things where he does feel, I guess, a bit shoehorned. But it kind of felt natural in the movie. And look, I get it. They did it for us. And I appreciate that as a massive fan of Daredevil, massive fan of Charlie Cox as this character. I really appreciated them including him in the movie. And there were so many fan theories about it that I'm actually willing to bet that they actually got the idea of including him from the fans and amount of people speculating after Far From Home. He's going to have a lawyer. It should be Daredevil. And I'm so glad we got to see him because I just put such a big smile on my face. I love seeing him. Kevin Feige confirmed a few weeks ago that he will be the MCU's Daredevil. And I cannot wait to get more of him. I'd love a TV show or if they're working on a movie, I'd love that. I'd love seeing Charlie Cox again. It looks like he's still got it too. He hasn't lost his touch. His charisma and charm is still all there. And I just love that. But moving on though. The big thing that really sets forward the setup for this movie is the plotline of Peter, MJ, and Ned applying for college. So Peter, MJ, and Ned have all applied to MIT as well as a few backup schools. Now, all of these backup schools are first shown that they have rejected Peter at least. Then they all get a letter from MIT saying whether they've been accepted or rejected. They go to MJ's coffee shop where she's working, which actually reminded me of the first Spider-Man movie where Mary Jane is working in a coffee shop in New York City. And they open it and find out that they have been rejected. And the and Ned, and I believe Ned says that he's been rejected because of recent events. And I guess the controversy surrounding um, 
surrounding Spider-Man, and I guess they don't believe Spider-Man's a hero because, you know, it comes back later, and we'll get into it. But so because of this, Peter Parker basically feels like he's to blame for his friends not being accepted because while his friends are being rejected for stuff that he did, even though his friends had nothing to do with it, they just knew his identity. But they, you know, it's obviously not their fault that he's being revealed. Not that their fault that he's Spider-Man. Although they've helped him. So Peter Parker obviously feels ashamed. He feels a bit embarrassed and just feels bad about it. So because of this, he goes to Doctor Strange. Now, what I will say and what I actually like about this is that they do... I was really worried in the trailer that he would just go to Doctor Strange, but without any plot explanation from what drives him there other than his identity has been revealed. I at least like that there is an example of a somewhere where Peter's life has affected others in a way that he didn't mean to and just is completely violating the people who are being affected. What I don't like about this is that there's no way Doctor Strange would care. I mean, later in this movie, less than like 40 minutes later, he literally says certain villains' sacrifice is more important than their life in the multiverse. He does not have the most pure heart. I mean, Spider-Man has, Peter Parker has pure heart. Doctor Strange, especially with that line, certainly did not. It was a great line, but it definitely shows that he's not the most accepting human being. I don't know if this event he did changed his feelings and his personality of it because now he's way more careful. Maybe that could be an explanation, but what I don't like is I don't think Doctor Strange would care. And I like that he says, so that this kid's been through enough, Wong. Let's let him do it. And I actually like that the movie played that scene out differently. It felt a bit more natural and didn't feel so comedic in the way it was in the trailer. I didn't. I really didn't like that. In the movie, it felt a bit more like Doctor Strange empathizing with Peter. But still, I just don't think he would go so far as to de- like risk the multiverse to do so. And it felt rushed to me, the way he did this. But And I like the scene where he's talking to Wong. But as soon as that's done, I didn't realize how quickly it would just go to the spot. I thought there were going to be a few days in between. Peter talking it out with people, but there was none of that. And there was no rules being established. So once they do the spell, and Peter is constantly like, this guy, this guy. I cannot believe, I do not believe for one second that Doctor Strange wouldn't just stop the spell halfway through and say, just tell me what you want me to do before we move forward with this spell. Because... Peter Parker was stopping it so much that it felt so contrived to me. This is easily the most contrived section of the movie, easily my least favorite part of the movie because it just didn't feel right to me. Something felt so off, and I think this setup was even more clunky than I was hoping from the trailer, although it did make me believe it a bit more. The way it was executed was so fast that... It gave you the impact, sure, but I just don't think they made me believe this is how it would play out. And what I mean by Doctor Strange not accepting to do this is I just don't believe for a second that he would care enough to risk the multiverse to help Peter because his friends didn't get accepted into college. Like, what I was talking about with someone was that I feel like a better plot point to maybe force this and make us fight a bit more would have been like, Maybe a few, like, there to be, like, an event where a few people get killed or someone close to Peter gets killed. I get it. This is such a forced way of getting this plot line to get there. But I would have at least bought it a bit more than what Strange is accepted to do. Now, I understand why Peter is going to him and why he'd want this. 
but I don't understand why Doctor Strange would accept it so easily. And that was really my thought on the setup. But what I was really surprised by was how quickly we moved on and how quickly the villains were introduced. Because right after this, we go to the bridge fight scene. Before that, though, there is something to mention that it's that Peter actually never called um, MIT. But what I don't like about how what Doctor Strange, he's like, you risk the multiverse or something like that before you even talk to the, you know, the, the, you know, the administrator of the university. But you never told Peter Parker that this risked the multiverse. It just was a spell that he thought it would just be a lot more simple. So that didn't really add up to me. It felt like Doctor Strange being arrogant, which is his personality. But I still would have expected him to be a bit, act a bit more adult in this situation. That's just my personal opinion. Then we move on to the bridge, and, and I actually like the way they did this, which is that Peter was actually trying to find the um, Paula um, Newsom's character, I believe is the actress name. I'm sorry if I got that wrong. He's trying to find her so that he can convince her to in, to let get Peter and MJ, I mean, Ned and MJ accepted into MIT, or at least considered, and I'm, I'm going to forget to talk about this later, so I'll talk about this now. By the end of this fight, she actually does believe that Peter is a hero, and agrees to consider them for college. So I like that they threw some personal touches into this. But now let's talk about the bridge fight scene. Because as soon as Doc Ock comes in, the theme, using Danny Elfman's Doc Ock theme was genius. It was a genius move on Michael Giacchino. Like just slightly uses a motif in here. I love that. And comes here in the bridge fight scene. And this was actually to me, I know people are going to disagree, but this, is actually, this was actually my favorite action scene of the movie. I thought it felt the most... It had the, was one with the most impact. It felt the most tangible, the most Spider-Man to me. And I love this action scene, unless I'm forgetting one. And if I do, of course, I'll mention it later. But I love this bridge fight scene. And I also like the way that the nanotech was incorporated into the Doc, Doc, Doc Ock arms. It's something that I did predict. I believe one of my trailer breakdowns that Peter would use this nanotech. It would just trap Ock's arms. What I didn't like was how, it, how comedic it felt in the way the fight ended. Which, by the way, Alfred Molina's great. It has nothing to do with him. But I didn't like that it was so comedically played out at the end. But Alfred Molina, as soon as it, see, I saw him in the scene, I knew he would step, slip right back into it without missing a beat. And also the thing that absolutely, you know, I loved in the scene was how it ended off with Willem Dafoe's Green Goblin coming through. And the first thing you hear is that pumpkin bomb explosion. Then you hear his laugh. And I was just... Rush of nostalgia came to me, and I couldn't. I was just blinded by this. Like, I'm not saying the sequence was bad, but it just my memories of watching the sequence will always just be of happy memories, just seeing those villains again. And I love this bridge fight scene. The first act, though, there's definitely it definitely feels like they're really rushing to get to what the story they really want to tell, and that's the story of almost Peter's origin, which I'll talk about after this. And now we've got. Um, the Lizard and Doc Ock in prison, and that's kind of... <clears throat> we have Lizard and Doc Ock, and they're the two villains in prison right now. And Doc Ock says, you know, Norman Osborn was dead, so clearly there's something peculiar going on. But now Doctor Strange wants Peter Parker to go find other villains, and the explanation the movie gives for why they're the ones coming through is that they knew that Peter Parker was Spider-Man in their universes. And it does say in the movie, so if you're going to question why Emma Stone's Gwen Stacy didn't show up, MJ didn't show up, Harry Osborn. The reason for this is that Doctor Strange actually, <clears throat> excuse me, actually mentions that um, a few of them squeezed through, basically meaning that not all of them 
you know, were pushed through the multiverse barriers onto this universe. Convenient, obviously, that it's the villains that do this, but, I mean, this is something that if you're going to nitpick, you're just not made for superhero movies. You're not just functioned for superhero movies. It's the things you have to get over, and I'm absolutely able to do so. This, that's not my problem with this. My problem with this was actually that there's a major plot hole here, and that is that Electro in the Amazing Spider-Man universe never found out Peter was Spider-Man. And there's even a moment later where they make a joke about Electro thinking that, it, that Spider-Man was going to be black. So he doesn't know that Peter Parker's Spider-Man. So it didn't make any sense for him to come through. This is actually a major plot hole that I, I don't mind as much because it kind of came back in a cool moment at the end. But this is something that I noticed as soon as I was watching. I was like, I was like, why is Electro here? I was just thinking through all of them and all of them knew other than Electro. It just made absolutely no sense. But again, this is just stuff I'm willing to overlook. This doesn't have major implications or anything. It doesn't change. It doesn't tamper. It doesn't tank the experience of this movie for me. Something I wanted to mention, gets help from MJ and Ned. I was actually worried that in this movie, MJ and Ned would be completely pushed to the side and useless. Turns out Peter and MJ's relationship is actually kind of the heart and soul of the movie. So at least like that they didn't completely forget the side characters from the previous movies. Now we have a Peter Parker fight versus Electro fight. And I uh, personally, at least, I actually really enjoyed uh, this fight scene. It wasn't all that long. But I liked my favorite thing about this was that Sandman was actually the one that was defending Peter Parker. And I liked that he was like, Peter, it's me, Flint Marco. So I loved that they at least incorporated some of the character arts from the Raimi films and... Uh, web films into this and they actually do give an explanation for why Electro's different and that's that I guess this universe just gives him more power I mean it's not like an, an explanation but I actually was a lot more bothered by the plot hole of I don't know how he came to the universe than him changing personalities when it came to Electro I didn't mind it because he was clearly out of these five villains he's clearly the weakest in his own movie and the only one I would call bad so I didn't mind it, and I think Electro and Jamie Foxx were much better in this movie. Jamie Foxx felt much more suited for the role in this movie. He kind of was just playing Jamie Foxx, and Jamie Foxx is just, you know, just by his personality, he's a cool guy. So that Electro was fun in this movie. He had some really funny lines, obviously one we'll talk about later, which has to have hints at Miles Morales, is, Morales, excuse me. But one of my favorite parts of this movie was actually that once these guys are in, Willem Dafoe's Norman Osborn is the only one not in the prison now. They're talking about their universes and how this character died. And I like how Sandman, this is a bit later though, was kind of like telling them how both Norman Osborn and Otto Octavius died. So they got sent back, they would be killed. One of my favorite things was just this conversation going back and forth. And I love how even Lizard was like, Max, do I die? And I don't think he even responded. So I don't know. But one of my favorite things about this was just them bantering about their universes. Peter trying to figure out what the hell's going on. And pretty much, yeah. I just like that this was going on at this time. So, with that said, there is definitely... Uh, the next thing to talk about is something that I really want to talk about. And that is that Norman Osborn in this movie, Willem Dafoe, he is so good. He is, in my opinion, one of the best actors working right now. He is so good, consistently delivers knockout performances. And this is another one. He breaks his mask to try and get rid of the goblin persona, which, by the way, it, breaking the mask almost felt like, just like, 
an apology, not an apology, but just directly referencing the audience who like making fun of that mask, the Power Ranger suit. I am one of those people, and I enjoyed that they gave him a new look in this movie. He actually goes to the feast shelter, kind of dressed like a homeless person. And I actually really like this because I feel like Norman Osborn would have just felt so lost in this situation after having the Golden Persona taking over him for so long. <clears throat> but, yeah, he ins- yeah, but once he goes here, Aunt May calls him and says, you know, one of the people you're looking for is here. Peter goes there and at first just wants to send them back, but Aunt May says that, you know, these people look like people who need help. And one of my favorite things about this movie was how this kind of inspires Peter to, you know, take responsibility for maybe a few some of the mistakes that the past Peters did or some of the mistakes he made by bringing these guys here. Maybe this was actually a chance for him to save people. And I love the way this was incorporated. I love the way Aunt, Aunt May told him about this. But once they get all five of the villains in the same location talking, again, this is where some of the banter comes in, and Peter decides he wants to help them, there is also a moment where I had this written down so I wouldn't forget. Norman Osborn actually says a line, which is, I'm something of a scientist myself. One of the most memed up moments in the history of Spider-Man movies might be in movies in general. And when I heard that line, and when it came to this point in the movie, I was pretty nervous because we were kind of, the entire first hour of this movie is almost just Peter going around getting these villains, getting them locked up. And it just felt like the writers trying to stir up our nostalgia while creating a very thin and um, just very cheap uh, plot to get all these villains together. And by this point, when that line was said, I was terrified where this movie was going. But as soon as the next scene happened, this was the turning point of the movie for me. And I've seen a lot of people talking about how there was actually a different turning point, which is Aunt Aunt May's death. To me, this is where it was at. And this is when Peter Parker... When Doctor Str- we knew this plot point was going to be here. When Doctor Strange says, you know, um, their sacrifices mean infinitely more than their lives in the multiverse. And Peter Parker says, Strange, have a heart. I love that line. And I love this fight scene that happens between them. And it's one of the best things that I think John Watts has done in this trilogy. And I love the way it plays out. And I love how Peter manages to trap him using math. So great. I love that this Peter actually had to think of something to really do and I love how he even steals the sling ring so that Strange um, can't you know come back and what Peter does now is pretty, pretty much takes the villains to his to Happy Hogan's apartment where they're staying now now what I don't like about this scene is that it's very convenient there's just a bunch of a bunch of you know the bunch of convenient Stark tech what I loved about this is that taking these villains to their apartment and, and trying to help cure them is exactly what Peter Parker would do. It's exactly what Spider-Man would do. And this is by far the best visualization and portrayal of this character we've had in the MCU so far because the most accurate. Because Peter Parker is, again, one of the most pure-hearted superheroes out there. He's such, he's just a nice person. Like, that's just what he is. And I just, and he, but he also goes out of his way to help other people. But this time he has more limited, he's by himself, although he does have Star Tech. And I just love that he would choose to do this over sending them back like Doctor Strange was, or just trying to hunt them down the entire movie. And I just love this plot point. The first one that does get geared is Doc Ock, who is the one that I think clearly was the most on the side of good by the end of 
the movies for all these villains, so it made sense for him to win to be cured. And I love that they didn't completely ignore what was happening at the end of Spider-Man 2, although it does, this movie doesn't make points that he was taken right before Peter Parker was able to take his, or I guess right after Peter Parker was able to take his mask off, but not able to, you know, fully deliver a speech yet. So I guess he was still a villain, which is actually something I'm, yeah, that's where I was, unless I'm remembering Spider-Man 2 incorrectly. So I like that he's the first one to be cured. And this is where, while Peter is making the cure for Norman and some of the other villains and for Electro, Peter gets the spider sense. And I, this is one of my favorite visual moments in the movie because I love the way that he, the spider sense, is visualized by John Watts, and I, especially in this scene. And it's where... Um, it's kind of where... This is where you can clearly tell there's someone who's acting out of character. And... This is where we learn that the goblin side of Norman is now taken over, which, by the way, I love how they don't give goblin a mask. It looks so much better without it. But, And then Peter's trying to figure out which villain is kind of planning to do something to him. And this would only work with Spider-Man, because of a spider sense. Figures out it's Norman, and as soon as he webs his hand against the wall, that switch that Willem Dafoe makes in his acting instantly starts to, you know, turn into his goblin voice, which is so... Amazing! I loved Willem Dafoe so much in this movie. He was, abs- he was an absolute scene stealer, even when he wasn't playing the Goblin. He was so good. And I love the way he just switched on a dime. And my favorite thing about this was that Electro actually shoots Doc Ock out of the apartment when, um, when he's trying to help Peter because obviously he's been cured. And these villains pretty much plan to escape because they just don't think what Peter Parker is doing will work. And some of them want to stay in this universe before they're, instead of being sent back because, like, Electro has more power here. I thought that story actually came together pretty good and actually worked. And I love the way that was able to be done. But there's a great, more brutal hand-to-hand fight between the Goblin and Peter Parker. I wish more of it was shown because I felt it was pretty short. It was intercut by a few other things, like J. Jonah Jameson being outside, which I love the way he was used here. He's actually in it a bit more than I personally expected. I'd, I thought he was going to show up for, like, a scene. But he kind of comes in every now and then in like intervals as pauses between major plot points. Really enjoyed him in that role, and I thought he did a great job in here. But obviously the major thing that happens here is that Aunt May is killed by the glider of the Green Goblin. And I love this movie takes a pause to show that. There's like a three-minute scene of the Goblin bombing the place, uh, and then Aunt May, Peter getting Aunt May up, not realizing she's dying, herself not realizing she's dying. She falls to the floor and Peter realizes what's going on. It's such a heartbreaking scene. I don't think this universe has necessarily built up Aunt May for this death to be extremely emotional. But what I think hammered it home for me was Tom Holland's acting, also the way they did it. That making the audience know, like, there's no way that she survived that. And kind of dreading something coming. And then the characters not realizing was even more like, we want these characters to find out and try and do something. It was too late. And that almost made it way more impactful for me personally. And I love how after this, there's like a quick like one to two minute section. There's not much, but there's kind of a few minutes to just pause and kind of just look at this. And we have J. Jonah Jameson just dogging on Peter Parker. And he, then like Ned and MJ just don't know what's going on. Don't know where they are. Other than that, I guess Aunt May has died and they see that on the news. And while Ned, also, this is something I should mention. This is one of the things that I kind of referenced, one of the conveniences in my spoiler-free review that 
I felt was a bit out of nowhere. That's the net kind of has magic. I'm not a fan of this plot point. I don't think it's fit with what we know about this character, what they built up in the previous movies. But everyone watching this movie, I'm sure, will be fine with it knowing where it leads. So I'm not even going to stick on this and I'm just going to move along. This is where we get one of the, by far, the loudest reaction I've ever heard from an audience. Actually, one of the only, might be the only time I've ever heard an audience, seen an audience clapping, which I was too, especially when the second guy showed up. But we get Ned trying to use a sling ring to find Peter Parker. And obviously, you know, the other universe of Spider-Man obviously know themselves they're Spider-Man. So there's obviously a chance they might have come through. And we learned that these two Spider-Men have actually been in this universe for nearly a day now trying to figure out what's going on. We hear Toby Spider-Man, I guess I'm going too far, saying that he's actually actually sensed that this universe Spider-Man needed him help. But we have Ned opening a portal, and we see a Spider-Man really far away. And now, it was really clear in the scene that they were talking to a green screen, just the way it was filmed. But I just, it, just, it just worked, because he was looking through a portal. And we have a Peter Parker running through it. Instantly, I'm like, oh, so that's Spider-Man. And I'm like, this is a weird way to bring Tom Holland back. Then I realized... Is this the way that Andrew Garfield comes in? He comes closer, and as soon as he's running, I, I know that's not Tom Holland. I know that's the Amazing Spider-Man 2 suit, because I, I know because it's my favorite live-action Spider-Man suit. And even the bigger white eyes, I know that suit. And as soon as I saw it, I was so excited when Andrew Garfield... I'm, I'm just going to need to call him Andrew Garfield and not Peter Parker. Maybe I'll call him Peter 3. When Peter 3 takes his mask off, there was Andrew Garfield, and I was just so happy. Like, obviously, there's been talks about him appearing in this movie, and rumors for, like, a, over a year now. People saying that definitively that he was definitely in this movie for over a year now. But I still always just had it in me being like, I just can't imagine seeing these guys, three Spider-Men teaming up in a movie. It's just not feasible in my head. Seeing Andrew Garfield's Peter Parker, I just it just made me so happy. I mean, I there's been very few times I've been as excited sitting in a movie theater, and the entire back this point on to the rest of the movie, I was smiling the entire time just seeing these guys again and what they did with him, the amount of great moments, some of the best moments ever in a Spider-Man movie. I was just so excited, and I loved how there was even a few minutes to just make jokes. This is where some of the MCU humor comes in, and I understand people getting annoyed of this. But I like that we didn't go directly into the next Spider-Man showing up. And let's talk about Andrew Garfield before we get into, you know, the potentially even bigger reveal. Andrew Garfield in this movie easily delivers his best performance as Spider-Man at Peter Parker. He's the one—I think he actually gets a bit more screen time than Tobey Maguire's Peter Parker— Maybe just because he came earlier, but I feel like he was even given more memorable moments. I don't know if he was just more willing and more enthusiastic about coming back. I don't know if that was a choice on the writers or if just something I noticed, but he was so good in this. And it made me crave a TASM 3. Definitely not with the ideas they were planning to do it back in 2014, because those sound god-awful in every single way. But... Um, if they were to do the main Spider-Man 3 and we get this type of Spider-Man portrayal, I would be so on board. I've heard some people say that he feels very different from his universe. To me, it felt like a more matured 
more comfortable Spider-Man, although he does actually even mention in a very nice touch that he he stopped pulling his punches. I love that. Because obviously, you know, um, uh, Peter, because, you know, Gwen died. But let's just move on and finish talking about this scene. And obviously at this point, we know what's coming next. I mean, if they get one of them, they're getting both of them. The portal opens and we know exactly who's coming through. And we see someone without a Spider-Man to it. And I was kind of confused. And then I realized that, oh, they just got Tobey Maguire to come out in his um, youth pastor clothes, as, um, as Andrew Garfield calls it, Andrew Gar- Peter 3 he calls it later in the movie. And I guess Tobey Maguire is Peter 2. But yeah, I mean, the claps, the applause, it was just so great. And I just loved seeing Tobey Maguire again. I don't think he's been in a movie in like almost a decade. So at least in a live action movie. So seeing him again was just fantastic. And even the next scene where he's talking to Tom Holland, Peter, and kind of comforting him and kind of relating to his loss was easily one of the highlights of the movie for me. And I loved how many scenes they just had of these guys interacting about things that only the the most passionate Spider-Man fans like myself would notice. Like, like there were so many moments, which I'll touch on right now. Like, for example, the scene where we have Andrew Garfield, uh, Peter Parker cracking Tobey Maguire's back. That's obviously a reference to Tobey Maguire's injury before Spider-Man 2, but also the scene in Spider-Man 2 where he falls from the building and goes, my back. Such a great scene, by the way. I love that we have that. Such just a moment that it would be so out of place in another movie. Here was just so great. Uh, I love the scene of them talking about um, about how I love that they mentioned this about how Tobey Maguire was the Peter Parker who had a had a um, had organic web shooters and didn't have a mechanical one. Didn't have you know you know like actual web shooters. Loved how they mentioned that and how he would have never had to make new webs, although he did mention that his, he just stopped working, like it did in Spider-Man 2. And I also love the scene where they're just talking about their villains they fought, and Andrew Garfield is just really jealous of the other guys because they both fought aliens, and he fought, and he fought a rhinoceros with a Russian in it. Great reference to Paul Giamatti's rhino. And it almost felt like Andrew Garfield himself talking about how jealous and how disappointed he was he never got to do more with the character and this movie almost i felt like it's one of its one it's like second third maybe like a secondary if not like its third main objective for this for this movie was pretty much to just redeem andrew garfield the spider-man and just let fans be satisfied and this movie definitely helped with that for me because i've always been disappointed we never got to see more of it even though i prefer the tom holland iteration personally I know there are people who love Andrew Garfield the most, and I like that. I just love that we got to see this, and I just love how both actors, even Tobey Maguire, because I've actually heard a few people say that they thought he was really flat in the movie. I did not feel that at all. I thought his charisma, his charm, his naivety was naivety was all back in this movie, and I just love seeing. Him. I was actually really worried that if they brought these guys back, they wouldn't really care, but it seems like all their heart and passion was there. It just made me as a fan really happy that they also wanted this to happen. I'm sure they had so much fun working on set as like three Spider-Men. That obviously would have been great. Now we move on to the next scene, which is just the three Peters kind of flexing with their science. They just go to this laboratory, just make villains. 
make cures for villains, excuse me. And I don't really care at this point, like, about the plot. I mean, I just want to see these guys interacting. But even then, as a Spider-Man plot for a movie, it feels so quintessential. Because it's about these guys making a cure and teaching Tom Holland how to approach these fights based off what they've learned. And this is just so great because it will make Tom Holland in the long run a better Spider-Man. Not a Spider-Boy anymore looking up to Iron Man, but actually Spider-Man. And one of my favorite details was how Ned actually asked about their closest friends. Now both of them, or at least Toby's that he mentioned, tried to kill or died kind of fighting him, which is not exactly how it went down. But there's a lot going on here and I understand that. And I get it, it's hard to believe that these all these guys just conjured up four villains within like twenty villains cures in twenty minutes. I was fine with the Andrew Garfield explanation, which is that he's done it before with a lizard, even with Toby Maguire, the Green Goblin, he's been thinking about it for a long time. That makes sense to me because experience Willem Dafoe, but then he also fought Harry Osborne, who also had the same thing, so I'm sure he thought about it. I feel like with with both of them I think it works. What I didn't really buy into was how Peter Parker could just make a cure for Sandman and Electro. For Electro, it was set up earlier in the movie, but especially for Sandman, it was kind of, it kind of just pulled it out of nowhere. But again, that's not really what's so important. It's just that, it's just that how he's defeating them is what you need to buy, not the technicalities of it. And I, and I bought into that personally, and it's one of my favorite parts of the movie. Now we obviously get to the third act of this, at the new Statue of Liberty. And you know what I loved about this was that even with multiple Peter Parkers here, and this is also cool, this is also, okay, this is also, um, this is actually more relevant for the previous scene I talked about with them at the lab. But I love how even with multiple Peters, the heart of this, of these last two movies at least, the Peter-MJ relationship, I love how they can still have a moment and still be crucial. And I love the scene they had when with Andrew Garfield watching them. And even how Toby mentions, like, do you have anybody? And we even get a bit of closure of Toby's Peter saying that he did kind of patch things up with MJ. And although I don't like that character, probably my least favorite thing about the entire trilogy, you do root for Toby's Peter to, you know, get what you want by the end of it because he's just so likable. So I like that we got some closure there. And I just love the way the movie weaves these smaller moments in. But when we get to the Statue of Liberty fight, I mean, there's just cool action here. I don't really know what I can talk about. But a few moments I loved. Andrew Garfield referencing himself as Peter Three, Kind of almost like a wink from Andrew Garfield himself. Referencing that he will always be the lowest ranked Peter Parker. Because he kind of didn't really get his turn as much as the other two. Toby had a full trilogy that mostly con- concluded it. Even though they planned for a fourth. And Tom Holland's one, he's already had more screen time than, not both of them combined, I don't think, but definitely more than both of them already. I mean, he's been in Avengers movies, so I even like that. Also, something I do have to mention is that there are a lot of edited trailer shots, so I at least like that um, edited trailer shots. There's a few that we obviously really need to talk about. Obviously, the ones where the three Spider-Men land on the porch and then both swing, they go at the electrodes, and it turns out Andrew Garfield was the Spider-Man click-kicking lizard in the trailer. Oh, uh, love that. One of my, one of the most, I, it, this will become an iconic Spider-Man moment. There is no way around it for me. And obviously, we do have Peter Three or Andrew Garfield Spider-Man saving MJ. That was so satisfying. I mean, it's what we needed, and I, you could just feel kind of 
the relief from the audience when that happened, the satisfaction. It felt like everyone was kind of like, yeah, that's what we needed. Then we obviously had um, Toby Maguire's Peter uh, getting to talk to Otto Octavius, who actually comes in and actually helps helps them stop Electro. I love that conversation of, I love the moment where Peter says, um, he calls him Otto, showing that he's grown up and they're kind of more equals and pretty much Ox says, you're, you've, you're all grown up. And that was so satisfying hearing that. And I, also, I loved that they aged up Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man from when we last saw him. I'm not saying they aged up Tobey because he's around this age in real life, I'm sure. But I like that they didn't make him like a, him trying to play a 20-year-old. And when he's like, I believe he's like 48 years old now. So that just makes no sense. Almost in his 50s. It would just make absolutely no sense. So I like that he at least plays, I wouldn't say he plays as old as he is in real life now, but plays an older age. And I even like how he references the line he says in Spider-Man 2 of trying to do better. Just like I think he says to Doc Ock earlier in Spider-Man 2. And I liked how Peter got to have a small moment with Sandman, which unfortunately they reused footage of Sandman. And for me, it was extremely noticeable that it felt out of place. But I like that at least Peter got to empathize him. There was no dialogue. Thomas Hayden Church came back. I guess I could talk about that now. Thomas Hayden Church did come back to play voice Sandman, but I guess either he was unavailable or the writers thought, the creators thought it would just be way too expensive to bring in another, I guess, veteran actor. But I don't know. I just, something I wanted to mention. And then also we also have the moment between Andrews, Peter, and Electro. And there's obviously here a reference of a black Spider-Man, which is obviously referencing Miles Morales, which I'm sure will come into play in the future. And what I loved about some of these images is that they use music from each of Toby and Andrew's um, movies. And this actually confirms that the leaked soundtrack from a few weeks ago was 100% real. I didn't get to listen to really any of it other than, you know, the main stuff people were talking about. But obviously I love James Warner's Amazing Spider-Man theme. I love Danny Elfman's original Spider-Man theme. They both play in here, and I love that they didn't use Hans Zimmer's because that would just not a fit for me. But once all these villains are cured, pretty much the one that's left is the Green Goblin. I love the when he makes a reference to his line in the original Spider-Man, although this time it actually does make sense. It doesn't feel shoved in like the scientist line. He says, can Spider-Man come out to play, which is also what he says on the phone when um, MJ is MJ, uh, Mary Jane in those movies was taken by... Norman Osborn, he, he's almost killed, actually. Tom Holland's Peter Parker gets a, bru- a short but brutal hand-to-hand fight with him, and he's almost killed, but he's topped, he's stopped, excuse me, by Toby's Peter Parker. Toby's Peter Parker's then stabbed. Thank God he wasn't killed, but he is stabbed. But what I liked is that Toby's Peter Parker is the one who stops him because he obviously had to experience Norman Osborn being stabbed but by his own glider, to an extent by his hand, not really, because he's the one who got out of the way and didn't realize I was going straight to Norman Osborn. So I like that he stopped that from happening, partly maybe because of his trauma, but also knowing that them not wanting Tom Holland's Spider-Man to go down the same way Andrew Garfield did, which is now he's almost a, you know, more rageful Spider-Man, which obviously doesn't really fit the character and doesn't fit the vision that kids have for him. And what do they do here is Tom Holland's Spider-Man pretty much cures... Norman Osborn, and that's all the villains taken care of. And I just love that they're not all defeated by going to prison or killed. It's Spider-Man helping all of them, and I just love that. 
And then we move on to the falling action and the just how the story wraps up here. And to make all these villains go before everyone else comes through, which I'm actually considering making another episode talking about all the villains people have been noticing in that purple um, sky thing, which there's no way I'm not I'm going to have enough time to talk about everything I noticed in here. But I at least noticed Scorpion, Rhino, and especially Craven the Hunter. That one stuck out to me right away. May make another episode talking about this because there's so many theories about who was there. But to, And Doctor Strange just come back here. But to kind of get everyone to be able to go back, they need a new spell. Why they didn't just do the same spell they tried earlier and just make everyone forget a Spider-Man, I don't know why that spell wouldn't have worked here. So I'm not going to get into that. But what they decide to do is Peter Parker tells Strange that just do a spell where everyone forgets who Peter Parker is and it will take these villains back because these villains know Peter Parker and it will just make no sense. And everyone basically pretty much ends up forgetting that for, this, this spell will cause everyone to forget Peter Spider-Man, including Doctor Strange himself and everybody. And this is where we get a bye, him saying bye to all the Spider-Man, Spider, both Spider-Men. And I like to have a moment where they hugged. But the main thing here, and I love, again, I love that the movie doesn't overshadow this with the inclusion of the Spider-Man, which are both great. Honestly, they were used even better than I could have ever expected. They were legitimately supporting characters, and I love that. This is where we say goodbye to them. But the main thing here is that it doesn't shy away from what really matters to this Peter, and that is his friendship with MJ and that. Him and Ned get a great goodbye. And then obviously the more important point from this stage in his life is MJ. And he tells MJ that you're going to forget I ever existed. And they get a really great moment. And this moment, I think I love their, I love them, their relationship, especially in Far From Home in this movie. That's kind of really where all we've seen them. But anyways, but if people weren't fully on board with it in Far From Home, it seems like everyone I'm hearing is saying that they really felt it in this movie. And this probably the strongest emotional moment of the movie because I felt like they've given more time to this character really getting to see Peter's connection with her and this was actually a really great moment now, it was really emotional and really really well done it was executed I think in the best way possible and I even love the way how MJ wanted to leave you know their conversation hanging so that Peter definitely tried to reconcile with them and moving on from this obviously things have gone back to normal no one remembers who Peter Parker is he goes inside to MJ's coffee shop. He learns that both MJ and Ed have been accepted into MIT, which is the logistics of this, which people are going to nitpick to death, and I also tried doing it myself a few days ago. But does he just disappear from people's memories entirely or people's uh, photographs? I'm not going to get into this because it's just such a big logic thing that's going to just kill me talking about it. I will go on about it for an hour. But I think the emotional... Um, consequence and implications of this outweighs any of the logical holes that you could find within them trying to do this plot line. And he, because he sees the bandage on MJ's head and how much pain and, and like just the the problems that being him being Spider-Man and them knowing him has caused for him, he accepts that them not knowing who Peter Parker is will probably be better and won't change how their lives are too much and it will make them a lot safer and he makes the just adult choice in this situation and this to me really felt like the moment where you're like okay Tom Holland has now become our classic Spider-Man and although I've loved what they've done with him so far there is a point and I really started to feel it in Far From Home where I feel like we really need to move on from this 
him being so tied to the Avengers. I don't want him out of the MCU because I think there's a lot of opportunities in the Avengers movies to have him interact with people, but I really want his movies to be about him and just be devoid of any other Avengers unless you're going to include Daredevil. That's one my one exception because he's not really an Avenger, and I just think that just them two would work well together. And But he wouldn't act like a mentor to him, and I think that's what would really work. And it seems like they listened to all my concerns after Far From Home. And this movie really hammers down where they're going. He decides not to, you know, remind them who he is. But I will say this. I am 95% sure that both MJ and Ned will be back for the next movie. So if you're worried, I would personally put those to rest. I think they'll be fine. But I think there is a chance that they don't show up for at least the next movie. But I'm sure they'll be back in the future, if not for the next movie. So he decides not to tell them, and then we, and then the, this movie leaves off on the best note I think any Spider-Man movie has ever left on, on the note I left the most satisfied with. And that's that, well, firstly, he gets a moment happy where we actually, you know, really bring down that no, no one knows who Peter Parker is. But we get Peter Parker in this crappy New York apartment, and even with this, we see a smile on his face. And there was even the coffee cup, coffee cup that MJ gave him to remind him of her. And uh, we get Peter Parker making his own crappy little, really bright Spider-Man suit. And although it doesn't look perfect, I definitely think the suit could be improved for the next movie. This was clearly a temporary one that I think they threw together pretty late in production, in my opinion. And I actually heard they changed the ending on Tom Holland's. Tom Holland's idea to do so, and I think it really worked. Hopefully that doesn't mean they're not moving forward with what they're setting up here, but I just love the way this ends, and we just get Tom Holland's Spider-Man in the classic suit, swinging off in New York, in New York Christmas, same location that we had Hawkeye, the finale take place in, and that's pretty much all we get, is him swinging into the night, going to stop crime with his new suit, super bright, and looks extremely cheaply put together. There's just nothing like the classic suit, and it looks... It looks really good definitely not perfect but with a few fine tunes this will easily become one of the absolute best spider-man suits ever swings off into the night that's pretty much where the movie ends off obviously aside from the post-credit scenes and i at this point was just so satisfied i was sitting here like i was sitting in the theater just like thank you this is exactly what i needed and i cannot wait i might even be no that's a lie i'm almost as excited for the next Spider-Man movie as I was for No Way Home. No Way Home will be the most excited everyone's going to ever be for a Spider-Man movie. For Spider-Man 4, I'm hyped. And I hope we don't have to wait like three, four or five years to get it. Although I have a feeling they might wait a while because I've heard Tom Holland kind of wants to take a break from the character. I don't know, but his comments have been a bit confusing recently, but love this ending. Now let's talk about the post-credit scenes, although I'm not going to spend too much time on them because I've just gone into the actual movie in depth. So getting into the mid-credit scene, I was extremely let down by this mid-credit scene. But I didn't really mind because I just watched such a great movie. But in here we get Tom Hardy's Eddie Brock. Um, we get Tom Hardy's Eddie Brock talking to, um, the, I guess, the bartender where he was at. And he's pretty much getting described what, what is going on in this universe. And there's even another thought earlier of how does Eddie Brock know that Peter Spider-Man, although I was fine with this because I'm sure Venom has met him, in a, met him maybe before we met Eddie Brock or maybe in a different universe again. 
he was about to tell something at the end of Let There Be Carnage, and I guess that was them trying to soften the blow of this not making much sense, but again, I just decided to ignore this. My problem with this was that the ending of Venom, Let There Be Carnage was definitely the thing that most audiences left wanting to talk about at the end of Venom, Let There Be Carnage. And now we have him showing up and doing absolutely nothing. Now, I don't think he would really fit with this universe, but this movie almost saves... This main credit scene is pretty much saved because the final shot of this, of this movie, because the post-credit scene is just a trailer, so it's not really part of the movie. And I don't think it would be included in, like, the... In, I guess I should say, the like the Blu-ray version of this because it even comes after all the logos, so it wouldn't be included. But... And it's also from a different studio, so that just wouldn't make any sense. Which also I was really surprised by. that They chose to attach a trailer for Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, a Disney movie, in the post-credits scene of a Sony movie, which makes me believe that Disney and Sony are, like, at the top of their, like, their relationship thriving right now. And I really don't see Spider-Man getting detached from the MCU because I feel like they're on the absolute best terms right now with where they're at and how much money this movie's making. That's great for that's great for them, and I really hope that Spider-Man continues to be in the MCU. And I feel like it would be really fun seeing him going between the universes, which again would be super confusing for the general audience who don't keep up with everything. But really fun for someone like me, as long as they're able to explain it. What saves this mid-credit scene though is that Eddie Brock is instantly teleported back, but at least we get that hint that some of the Venom symbiote stayed behind. Not all of it, because it's way too small. Hinting that in the future we might get a black-suited Spider-Man story. I would love to see the black-suited Spider-Man story with Tom Holland's Spider-Man as long as we get at least another two movies of him doing normal Spider-Man stuff. And I'm actually really curious to see now that he sees the villains in this movie, how that's going to tie into how he perceives like some of these villains he might meet in the future. Like, is he going to look out for these people? But that's obviously not the point that I want to get into. The mid-credits scene, leaving the symbiotes, it was cool, but overall I was a bit disappointed that we didn't get Tom Hardy's Eddie Brock. We kind of got bamboozled. Getting excited with that event on the Big Carnage post-credit scene. But oh well, we're going to have to move on from that. That's all about the post-credit scene. I'm not going to get into the actual content of the trailer because it's been broken down to death. And it's a trailer, so I would just go on about it for like half an hour. But what I absolutely love this trailer. This is one of the absolute best trailers I've seen from Marvel recently. It looks absolutely fantastic. Sam Raimi's direction in Doctor Strange and Multiverse of Madness looks incredible. I honestly think this is... This, prior to the announcement of Spider-Man 3 and No Way Home and what's going to be going on in this movie, this is my most anticipated of the movies, and if you don't believe me, you can check back two years when I ranked every upcoming Marvel project by my anticipation. Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness is my number one because I love multiverse stories, especially when they're creatively told. And when Sam Raimi was announced that he was going to be replacing Scott Derrickson, that they genuinely got an upgrade in terms of pick because... Sam Raimi is such an incredible director. I love his love Spider-Man 1 and 2. And I've, I've wanted him to do a superhero movie again forever. And the fact that he's getting to do it now with Doctor Strange 2, one of his favorite comic book characters who's even referenced in Spider-Man 2, is just so poetic and so satisfying to me. And his direction here in this trailer looks incredible. And it's by far the main thing I noticed. The colors are there. There's even hints at Strange Supreme. Wanda Maximoff seems like she's going to be part of a big role in the movie. I think it looks fantastic. I may make another episode talking about the trailer and breaking it down, but it released to the public a few days ago. I don't really know how much I can add from the momentous amount of theories that are online, but I absolutely love the trailer. And 
I love this movie, as you can probably tell. I've raved about it mostly. It had a few issues which really bugged me early on, but by the end, it's just all so satisfying. And as a Spider-Man fan, it just was great. With that said, though, that does come to the end of the spoiler review. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure to come back soon for my ranking of the MCU. With that said, thank you so much for listening. I'll catch you all next time. Bye-bye. Thank you.